A question I've heard asked of pastors preaching through the book of Acts is, how are you going to handle those last chapters? You see, we expect, expository preachers expect to take probably about a year moving through the first 21 chapters. And then we come to a stretch of narrative that seems somewhat repetitive. It includes the defenses, the many defenses that Paul is called upon to make to various leaders. And these are different accounts and they are taking place in different settings and yet they read quite similarly and for a while in Acts it can feel as though you're sort of stuck in a cycle. You know, the lather, rinse, repeat cycle. Paul is accused, Paul shares his story, Paul comes across as innocent because he is, transfer the case. The challenge in preaching is that with a few variations every sermon could come off sounding the same. So instead of walking through the blow-by-blow blow unfolding of events that Luke is so faithful to record here, or taking the time to note the subtle differences in the way that Paul presents his truly amazing conversion story. This morning we're going to cover a larger-than-normal part of the text, and we're going to touch on just a few recurring themes that we find in these concluding chapters. Namely, we're going to be looking at the persistence of the opposition, the apparent power of the wicked, and the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Our Father, as we come to your word, we come to sit under it, to learn from it. We are grateful that you speak to us every time we open your word. We pray that you would speak to us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So for sake of context, for those who um, may be jumping into the story without the benefit that we've had working our way through the book of Acts, let's recap some of what the Apostle Paul has most recently endured. He was arrested in Jerusalem, even though he had committed no crime, he was unceremoniously taken uh, out of the temple and he was put in chains. He addressed an angry mob there and they listened to him, we remember, up to a point until he disclosed his mission, which was to go to the Gentiles, and then they said, away with him. Uh, he was whisked away to Caesarea because there was uh, news of an assassination plot that had been hatched against him, and so he had to be moved under the cover of darkness. He was then tried before the Roman governor Felix who deferred judgment but kept him detained for two years. And now we pick up here in chapter 25 with Felix's replacement, Festus, coming on the scene. He is the new governor. Paul is still a prisoner of the Roman Empire. Despite having done nothing illegal, he remains a target for the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And so first we note the persistence of the opposition. Just three days after landing in the province, Festus embarks on his get-to-know-you uh, tour, which any new CEO would do. He travels from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and once he gets there, he's met with a coalition of Jewish leaders who lay their case out against Paul and want this new governor to send Paul to them. They say that under the guise of having a trial, but the real intent is to kill him. They want Paul to come to Jerusalem so that they can kill him. It has been over two years the Apostle Paul has been in Roman custody. It, it has been over two years he's been out of the mainstream, certainly out of Jerusalem, 
And yet, for some reason, he is the first order of business for these Jewish leaders with their new governor. You see, they have such hatred for Paul that they will not rest. Indeed, some of them must have been very hungry because you'll recall, I think it was chapter 23, they made a vow that said they weren't going to eat until they had killed Paul. They weren't going to rest until the apostle was killed. We could say that these fellows knew how to hold a grudge. But of course, there's more to the conflict than that, isn't there? These Jewish leaders don't just dislike Paul. They hate what he says. And they hate what he represents. They are united in opposition, not just to the person, but to the message of Christ. At the core, their issue is with, and they are fighting against, the propagation of the gospel. Why would they do that? Why would anybody resist the good news of Jesus? Well, Jesus once told them why they so fiercely resisted him. And his words are recorded in the 8th chapter of John's gospel. To the Pharisees in his day who were seeking to kill him, Jesus said this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. They, they didn't know it then. They, they didn't recognize it as they dealt with Paul, but these Jewish leaders were not at all following the Lord. Instead, they were carrying water for the devil. So what's playing out here so many years later is not an issue of opinion or simple disagreement. It's more of the same. We understand it to be spiritual warfare. In the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, Paul writes about this. He emphasizes the nature of the battle that every Christian is involved with. Yes, conflict gets personified. It's easier to point a finger and blame flesh and blood. But that's not what Paul says is really going on. In conflict... He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here in Acts 25, the enemy wants to do what he does, and the enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And he's using these Jewish leaders to try to do it. I want you to notice, beloved, the devil is not passive. He is not passive. There are so many in our world today who don't even believe he exists, which is dangerous. But not only does he exist, he is not passive. He's real and he's active. And he's not to be underestimated. The Apostle Peter warns us. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil is not your friend. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he may. And he recruits the willing to do his bidding, which is why, again from Peter, Christians should not be surprised at the fiery trials, at the opposition that confronts us. Which is why Jesus can promise us, in this world you will have trouble. Because this world is, a, is under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. And the world hated Jesus. And as a result, it's going to hate the followers of Jesus as well. We should not be surprised 
at the persistence, the relentlessness of the opposition to our message, nor should we let it lead to despair. To be honest, we Christians living in 2023 really should become more comfortable with being unpopular. And I mean that seriously. We should become more comfortable with being unpopular, more comfortable with being mischaracterized, more comfortable with being lied about. John Calvin wrote, Christ's servants must be all the more courageous to carry on through good and evil reports. They should not think it anything remarkable that evil is spoken of them when they have done good. At the same time, they must easily defend themselves before men when the opportunity arises. That's what Paul is doing, and we'll get to that a little bit more in depth here in a minute. But for now, I just want to note the persistence of the opposition in Paul's life. It was opposition not just to Paul, but it was opposition to the gospel. And let's you and I not be shocked and let's not be dissuaded from what we believe if we should encounter the exact same sort of spirit. We will be opposed. And you know what? To be opposed does not mean that we are in the wrong. In fact, it could mean just the opposite. We may be opposed in this world exactly and specifically because we're holding to what is true and what is right and what is noble. And we are told to stand firm in that. And Paul did exactly that. He was steadfast despite his many opponents. And he tells us in Acts 26, verse 22, how he could be this way. He says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Did you catch that when it was read earlier? I have had the help that comes from not popularity, not everybody patting me on the back, not everybody telling me I'm in the right or doing a good job. I have had the help that comes from God. See, the Lord sustained Paul. And the Lord will sustain us. Because there really is something to that pledge, that promise, that news that Jesus shared as he was commissioning his disciples. You read this in Matthew chapter 28. When he said to them, don't forget this, guys, all authority... And heaven on earth is given to me. And I will be with you. Always. I will be with you. And Paul, Paul knew that. He knew that deeply. And we do well to know it as well. Another recurring theme over these final chapters in Acts is the apparent power of the wicked. Think of Claudius. Think of Felix. Now Festus and King Agrippa. Exercising authority over Paul. He's innocent, but he's in prison. He's done nothing wrong, and he's still detained without a trial for two years. In different ways, the narrative seems to indicate that these powerful men enjoyed their power. They certainly made uh, political calculations at the expense of Paul to preserve and promote their power. And so we might wonder as we dig into this story, why does, why does God let that sort of thing happen? Why doesn't God just deliver all his righteous ones? Why doesn't God just vindicate in the moment? Why does, why does God let this sort of thing happen? Why are the 
ungodly allowed to rule over the godly? Why do the godless prosper and the godly suffer? If we revert maybe to fourth or fifth grade, we'd be stomping our feet and saying, it's not fair. <laughs> well, it's, it isn't fair. The psalmist in Psalm 73 wondered these things. He looked around and saw rampant injustice going unchecked. And this is what he said. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. The psalmist is saying, this is horrible. These people have it easy and they have no regard for God. And those who seem to love the Lord and worship the Lord are, are, are under pressure, are under oppression, are, are not being treated well. This is horrible. We've seen this sort of treatment, haven't we? The politicians with the Apostle Paul. No knowledge or concern for God. Willing to listen, but no real concern, not willing to change. They lorded over God's servant, Paul. And we've seen them deal with him, not in terms of what is moral or in terms of what is just, but in terms of what is politically expedient for them. He's a pawn. Paul's a pawn. And it looks at face value as though he is at their complete mercy. Perhaps in your lifetime you've suffered in some way like this under someone yielding uh, wielding power selfishly or wielding power unfairly. Or maybe today you sit here and you're, you're overwhelmed or angered by the way our own politicians impose, legislate their ideology and create expectations and create celebrations and even laws that you're supposed to comply with even though they're contrary to what you truly believe. Maybe that sends you when you start to think along those lines. How should we understand the godless having the upper hand? Listen again to the psalmist who felt these same feelings of frustration and anger when he was prone to despair and self-pity because life was unfair. He said, but when I thought how to understand this, Psalm 73, 16 to 20, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. I love that passage in, in that particular scripture because life can get to you. And, and life is unfair at certain junctures. And you need to go regularly into the sanctuary of God. If you want the right perspective, you're going to find that in the house of God, in the presence of God, in the word of God, in prayer, through the spirit of God. This is what the psalmist did. I was ready to give it up until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned therein, truly speaking to God. You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You, you treat them as fantasies. It's just as if they were ghosts, as if they never even really existed. 
That's the end of the wicked, even the ones who seem powerful, even the ones who seem as though they truly are in charge of something. Similarly, the prophet Isaiah reminds us of the fate of those who would make a mockery of God's morality. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 to 24, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who, who turn things on their heads. Woe to those who say something that is true is false and something that is false is true. Isaiah is saying, woe to them. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Destruction is the end of those who despise God's word unless they repent. This is what they can anticipate. This is what comes to this apparent power. It becomes nothing. And so Charles Spurgeon rightly says this, We ought never to fear those who are defending the wrong side. For since God is not with them, their wisdom is folly, their strength is weakness, and their glory is their shame. Take heart, Christian. The apparent power of the wicked, which we sometimes fret over, perhaps more than we need to, is at best, and like any earthly power, only temporary. And there's something else to keep in mind that might help us wrap our heads around how Paul, we've noted this a couple of times now over a couple of weeks, how Paul can maintain his composure when he's being treated so poorly. Paul knows this. These rulers would have no authority over him at all unless it were granted from above. And if that sounds familiar, it ought to sound familiar because you take it out of John chapter 19 and these are the words that Jesus spoke to Pilate. And Pilate said to him, don't you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus set him straight and said you would have no authority at all unless it were granted you from above. And Paul knows this. All authority is granted by God, and God is in complete control. Another theme, we're not talking about it anymore today, but another theme in the book of Acts, the sovereignty of God. God has it in his hand. And so Paul decides, even in these hard circumstances, that he is just going to trust God. And it gets even better, though. Even beyond that, Rather than resent his captors or complain about his wrongful detention or demand his rights, he uses what time and influence he has afforded to try to save the very ones who are trying to harm him or at least aren't treating him well. He's using that time to preach, and that's the third and final theme I'd like us to see from our scripture today, these final chapters of Acts. Throughout all of Paul's ordeals, he continues to faithfully proclaim the gospel. He will not be deterred in this. He will not be dissuaded. In all circumstances, Paul bears witness to Christ. Now, a little quiz. Do you remember what Jesus 
told the apostles they would be doing after they received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Do you remember that? You will be my... Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's just what we uh, have seen happen as we studied this book, exactly in that order. This is what has come to pass, just what Jesus said was going to come to pass. And what did Jesus tell Paul on the Damascus Road? We just read it, Acts 26, 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to, point, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you. And maybe you remember what the Lord told Ananias in a vision back in Acts chapter 9. Ananias is a little bit suspect about this Paul guy. He doesn't have a great reputation. Not sure that this is a good idea, that we're going to bring him into the fold or believe, in fact, that he has, could be converted. And yet, this is what the Lord says of Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And when Paul was first imprisoned in Jerusalem, Acts 23, 11, says the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That's what witnesses do. They testify. They testify. They tell the truth of what they know. So it would be easy for us in these concluding chapters of Acts to sort of get lost in the sauce of injustice that's happening all around, being visited on Paul. But it will also be just as easy for us to kind of check out because, okay, this is repetitive. Here we go again. How many times do we have to read about this conversion story of Paul, which, by the way, there was no horse involved? <laughs> How many times? But let's not miss this profound truth. This is what's going on here. This is what's happening. Things have not gone awry. Things are not off the rails. Things are not out of order because Paul is in a tough spot. That's not it at all. In fact, when Paul was called, the Lord told him what kind of suffering he was going to endure to be a follower of Jesus. So he knew these things. So again, things are not gone awry. What's happening in Paul's life at this juncture of Paul's life is just what Jesus said was going to happen. In the succinct words of commentator Tony Merida, the Lord Jesus was accomplishing his agenda in Paul's life. So here's the question. Is he accomplishing his agenda in yours? We're reading about how God is accomplishing his agenda in Paul's life. Is he accomplishing his agenda in your life? His agenda for you. He has one, you know. You were created on purpose for a purpose. Can you honestly say that your life is surrendered to the will of the God who made you? And has established acts for which, in, in which you should walk. Good works, according to the book of Ephesians. Can you honestly say that? You are surrendered to the point where God can do with you whatever God wants to do. You are completely submitted to his will. You are completely open 
to his service. God is doing that in the Apostle Paul. Is he doing it in your life? Now, one of the facets or uh, major aspects of Paul's life, obviously, is his evangelism, his, his desire to tell the story. Paul lived to tell the story. And he, and he told that story often, the gospel and his story, by repeating his amazing conversion. He never did that to make himself look good. He didn't do that to call attention to himself. In fact, he wanted people to see there has been a dramatic change in my life since Jesus knocked me down and set me straight. That's what he wants people to come away with, not to make himself look good, but to give glory to God for saving him. So we look at, yeah, that's the Apostle Paul. That has nothing to do with me. Wrong. Not at all. I know that, look, none of us have that, have that amazing conversion story of the Apostle Paul. In fact, that's part of the problem. Some of you are like, well, actually, I'm kind of a boring person. I really don't have much of a story. I've known Jesus for so long that I don't know what to say. I want you to think through that for a second this morning, and I want to put you on a hook. I want to ask, and I want you to think about it. What's your story? Paul was so willing to share his story and how the gospel intersected with that to give glory to God. What is your story? But not only can you, could, could, could you tell your story, who were you telling it to? Who were you sharing it with? Let me give you some primers to get you along the way and then we'll be done. If you're a little concerned about it, I don't, I, I don't know how to frame my story. Let me ask you some questions. When were you saved? Just think, you know, don't answer out loud, but when were you truly saved? Where were you saved? Some of you are going to be able to, to say, I know it was this place, I know it was this date. That's great. Think through these things. How were you saved? Not, not the lofty theological answer that we all know to be true. That God opened my eyes and the Holy Spirit came into me and I asked for forgiveness and received it. That's all beautiful and good. What I'm saying is, how were you saved? Were you saved out of addiction? Were you saved out of desperation? How, how were you saved? Did God pluck you from the fire, which is what... What he instructs us to do for people in the book of Jude. How were you saved? Were you, were you saved dramatically? Some of you were. Some of you, it was night and day. You were heading in one direction and God just turned you around and moved you in another direction. You might even be going, I'm still not quite sure how he did that. <laughs> Man, that's a story. That's worth talking to people about. How were you saved? Who told you about Jesus? Now, most of us, I think, are blessed to, we could list a lot of people who told us about Jesus. Praise the Lord. Amen. We, we grew up in situations where we were told, but not everybody has that. And most always, there was sometimes some place where somebody got the gospel through to you. Other people may have talked to you about it, and it didn't seem real, or it didn't seem right. But at some point... If you're a Christian, at some point, it got through. So who was it? Who was it that led you to Christ? What have you come to believe now 
that you did not believe before? How has your thinking changed? What do you believe now that you didn't believe before? That was easy for the Apostle Paul, right? Because he believed that all Christians should be killed. And he was going to do anything he could to persecute them and to imprison them and to shut them up. So for him to testify was no problem. Listen, I didn't think anything about the G this Jesus guy, but I'm telling you right now, he met me in Damascus on the Damascus Road, and he's alive. That's Paul's testimony. What do you believe now that you didn't believe before? Or think of it this way. How has Jesus changed you? How has he changed you? You know it's a good opening when you're trying to share the faith with... You can say to somebody, but for the grace of God, there go I. I was headed in a bad way. I was on the wrong road. God met me. God showed himself to me. God, God turned me around. He's changed me. I'm not the angry man that I used to be. I'm... I'm not the bitter woman that I used to be. I mean, how has he changed you? That's part of the story. And Christian, we have to be able to identify that. Because you know the Lord loves us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us that way, right? You know that. So we have to be able to say that we have been changed by God. That we are more patient or more kind or more... Consider, go, just go to the fruits of the Spirit and, and start to look at some of that stuff. How has Jesus changed you? And then and another thought would be, how has he, or what has he called you to? We know that God calls us from sin. He, he calls us out of a life of sin and he calls us to service to himself. But what does that service look like? What has he called you to do? What has he equipped you to do? With the, again, with the Apostle Paul, it was, it was easier because he just said, you're going to be my witness, and you're going to go to kings, and you're going to go to the Gentiles, and you're going to go to the children of Israel, and this is what you're going to do. But what has he called you to do? Where has he called you to go? So, beloved, please do think about this. What's your story? We've read the Apostle Paul's many times. What's your story? And who? Who are you telling it to? Let's take a moment to reflect and respond. I want to send you away this morning with a bit of a challenge. I want to ask you if you would at least consider this praying this week for a chance to share some facet of your life story. Just praying to God that he would open a door and give you a chance to share with someone, a chance to testify to someone, a part of your story about God's saving grace in your life and how that saving grace might bless them as well. Our Heavenly Father, you have given us this treasure of the gospel and you have placed it in jars of clay and how inadequate we sometimes feel and how inadequate we sometimes are to convey the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus.
And yet you tell us that we must. You tell us to shine the light that you have placed in us, this light of Christ. So we ask, God, that you might grant us the confidence of your presence with us and the help that comes from God as we seek the opportunities to obey. Amen. <laughs>